Welcome to the first episode of Sacred Realms, a podcast where two rabbis discuss science fiction and fantasy through a Jewish lens. I'm Rabbi Lindsay Healy Pollock. And I am Rabbi Andrew Pepperstone. For our first episode, we're going to introduce ourselves, talk about our Jewish, rabbinic, and sci-fi fantasy backgrounds, talk about what our goals are for this podcast, and then turn to our main topic, Tu Bishvat, the new year of trees on the Jewish calendar, and then trees in Judaism, sci-fi, and fantasy. And then we'll come to a segment that we're calling From the Geniza, where we'll pull out old material that we still love, which today will be a look at The Matrix and Battlestar Galactica. So first, some introductions, a bit about us. So I'll start. So I grew up in the Midwest and on the West Coast in a very movie-viewing, TV-watching household. I was five when Star Wars first came out and saw it in theaters, and I have been a very serious Star Wars fan ever since. I had all the toys, which I actually just sold five years ago. Um, I have, yeah, yeah, just sold them five years ago. I love science fiction, love fantasy, have come to really enjoy superhero movies, watched a lot of the shows as a kid. I have not read any of the comics, mm-hmm. uh, really enjoy Pixar, animated, animated movies in general. Um, I've pretty much seen most of the major sci-fi and fantasy works, not all, but a lot of them. Not a fan of any of the zombie stuff. I have not read a lot of sci-fi and fantasy. I've read some Star Wars. I have read no Star Trek. I've read Lord of the Rings, Dune, lots of Terry Pratchett. Um, really more a viewer of all these realms, not as much a reader. Um, I really enjoy when sci-fi and fantasy raise these big essential questions and reflect on or critique humanity, culture, etc. Jewish Lee grew up in a Reformed Jewish household. Both sides of the family are of Jewish European ancestry. For the most part, my mom's and dad's families just did holiday family celebrations. I attended supplemental synagogue education on weekday afternoons and Sundays very happily. Knew I wanted to be a rabbi in middle school after a number of weekend retreats, which inspired me to take Jewish living and learning more seriously. I kind of came home one Sunday and said, I'm going to be a rabbi, and they're still kind of shocked. Um, uh, Was very involved in a Jewish youth group during high school, did my junior year at Hebrew University, basically came back having left the reform movement and joined the conservative movement, um, which I now realize in a very cliche way is about tradition and change. Um, perhaps more on that in the future, but it's it's cliche, but so true. Um, I've always seen the intersection between Torah, written and oral, and themes in sci-fi and fantasy, most often because they deal with these ultimate questions. Uh, I've worked in a wide range of rabbinic settings, youth group, day school, Jewish summer camps, synagogues. Um, I also love to cook heavily into board games, lightly into role-playing games, And I stay up on tech as much as possible. Um, For me, the podcast goals are to explore the intersection of sci-fi and fantasy and Torah writ large, two of my passions, to use each one to shed light on the other 
celebrate their commonalities and explore their differences and to share with everybody else how each of these realms can talk to each other and hopefully share that joy with everybody else. So that's me in a nutshell. All right, Lindsay. So I grew up mostly in Texas with a significant part of my childhood spent living abroad. We lived in Egypt um, for one of my parents' work. Um, I grew up mostly in the 90s watching all of the Disney animated movies, starting with The Little Mermaid as they were released. So that was very much the pop culture world that I was that I was immersed in um, during my childhood and spent a lot of hours rewatching the movies, singing all the songs um, and even staging reenactments of the various uh, movies with my friends and family. I was exposed to the original Star Wars trilogy as a kid, which was significant um, because my parents were fans and then watched the prequels beginning with episode one as they were released. And my teenage years seemed to be kind of a peak time for big budget sci-fi and fantasy movie releases. Saw the Star Wars movies, uh, Lord of the Rings series, Harry Potter, all kind of got started around that time. Um, As a a kid, I always read a lot of child and YA oriented fantasy, um, but I never really got into the hardcore fantasy adult series. Some of it, I think, was lack of exposure or not really being sure where to start. And it didn't seem like a lot of those series were aimed at girls, particularly. Um, Some of my favorite books from growing up were Chronicles of Prydain, which Andrew and I were talking about as a long neglected series that might be interested to uh, to go into a little bit more. Um, His Dark Materials, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, I loved Ender's Game and that whole series as a teenager. I'm not sure what I would think now if I went back and and revisited it, which I might want to do. But Speaker for the Dead in that series in particular was really influential to me in how I thought about humanity and religion. And now as a rabbi, even kind of informs in some ways how I approach funerals. Um, And actually, his dark materials really shaped some of my theology, some of my conception of God or the divine presence in ways that are still very resonant for me. Um, And I love the new series on HBO Max, which I'm going to talk a bit about later. Um, I've gotten a little bit more into fantasy and sci-fi as an adult. Uh, I read the Song of Ice and Fire series um, at least as much of it as has been published, cough, cough, George R. R. Martin, get to work, and watch both the Game of Thrones TV series and House of the Dragon more recently. Loved both. Um, I've also gotten more into comics as an adult, as I discovered that it wasn't just about superheroes. Um, I've read Watchmen and The Sandman and watched and loved both of the series based on those. Um, recently I watched Wheel of Time on Amazon. I'm very hesitant about wading into that book series because I think part of what scares me off about a lot of these series is that there are just so many books and these writers can't seem to stop writing more of them before they die. And then someone else has to pick 
up and finish for them. So I don't know, maybe I have commitment phobia. Um, and in terms of my Jewish background, uh, pretty different from Andrew. I actually wasn't raised Jewish. I, long story short, learned more about it and really fell in love with Judaism when I was in college and as a young adult and went through the conversion process to join the Jewish people. And I've been nerding out on Judaism ever since to the point that I eventually decided to become a rabbi. And here we are. Um, so I'm in my fifth year in the rabbinate, and I currently serve as a congregational rabbi, and I'm also the program coordinator and an educator for an introdu introduction to Judaism program for adults. Um, as I think I mentioned, and similar to Andrew, what I find so compelling in many fantasy and sci-fi works is the ways that they explore those essential questions about what it means to be human, um, the ways that they push the edges of what's possible. I'm a total sucker for world building. I love the ways that sci-fi and fantasy can hold up a mirror to our own belief systems and the way that they challenge me to think deeply about the nature of reality, ritual, culture, and tradition. And these worlds give me a rich vocabulary that enhances my understanding of the divine and deepens my appreciation for Judaism. And my goals, similar to Andrew, is one, to explore the intersection of sci-fi fantasy and Judaism, to explore the connections of both within the broader fields of comparative religion, culture, folklore, and myth, and of course, to be awesome. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I thought I forgot to say I've been a rabbi for 21 years this spring. Uh, just to kind of put that out, I have a lot of second career colleagues who are my age who have been out there for less time. And I forgot I actually did read a ton of Piers Anthony as a kid. Mm. Um, I actually loved in particular um, his um, Death um, on a Pale Horse. In that whole series, and I actually made my kids read it, and they go, "Dad, it's terrible." I go, "No, no, it's good." And I reread it, and I came in. I'm like, "Oh no, no, you're right. Um, <laughs> it's not good." No. I just loved it, mm -hmm. and I love it in the past, but I don't love it anymore. As I'm not going to bother you to make you read it again. So uh, yeah, some of these things don't necessarily age well as much as I love them. Thus, our section from the Geniza, where we That's will right. explore things and whether they have in fact aged well yes oh, a segment we did mention is what we've been watching or reading lately that's also that's the next segment so here's what i've been watching and reading lately i've been reading nothing lately i can't read because of my covid trauma i just have no patience for reading so i watch a lot um i have never played but i've been watching the last of us which has been really interesting certainly touches on not the theme of trees, but the theme of like fungi and how fungi function as a large system mm -hmm. of interconnected units. That's interesting. Not really our topic today, but still botanical. Um, the last episode was some of the best TV I've seen in a very long time. It was a remarkable, beautiful episode. Um, I recently watched RRR, which is R Rage, Riot, and Rebel. I think I got that right. It's a over-the-top 
Bollywood movie. It's actually up for song of the year for the Oscars for one particular song and dance number. It is a hysterically funny to me, very, very nationalist oriented revisionist anti-colonial fantasy Bollywood movie. It's great. It's I don't know if it's good or bad. It was mesmerizing and you should watch it. It's so it's so weird. Where does one go to watch this? Netflix. It's on Netflix. Hey. It's it, it's so accessible. It is it's like three hours long. Gotta set aside time. It is the dance numbers are fantastic. Okay. And some of the writing is just like the bromance is so deep. It's just like this intense, intense bromance. Um it's very it's yeah. Very good movie. That is fascinating. And I don't know what the future holds, but maybe we can talk more about Bollywood movies um, because I have a, a very deep love of Bollywood movies. I've not caught up to date on recent ones, but I had um, a friend who was South Asian in high school who enjoyed showing us the you know best of various Bollywood hits and sometimes we would just fast forward to the dance numbers. Um, so I'm very curious to explore. Yeah. The dance is amazing to watch. Like the, the, the subtle movements of the body are, and it's so, and so like energetic at the same time, it was mm-hmm. fascinating. It's mm-hmm. a very interesting movie. Um, a lot of CGI animals um, that are used for various purposes are definitely a highlight of the movie. Um, yeah, it's well worth watching. That was my first real Bollywood watch, so I'm curious yeah. to see more. My brother said, you got to watch RRR. I'm like, okay, I'll watch it. He's like, yeah, 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 glad you did. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Avatar The Way of Water recently, and Avatar is definitely going to come up and are talking about trees, um, especially as tree as a central figure for a culture, even for a planet. Um, I thought it was time well spent. It's been such a long time since the first one came out, um, but I did happily see it, happily enjoyed all three and a half hours of it, and I recommend it. It was I thought it was good. Um, I don't think that the evolutionary differences between the various Navi made sense given the timeline, but hey, alien planet, you know, all 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 bets are off. Um, I recently watched Andor, which I will. Go to the mat and say some of the best Star Wars stuff ever written, ever made. It was simply stunning and so good and worth the slow burn. Um, if you haven't seen it, go see it. Um, and then last, um, and I'm watching The Bad Batch, another animated Star Wars series, which was just, uh, they just dropped episode six yesterday. And they go to Kashyyyk uh, Gunji, who is a... Wookiee Padawan from the Clone Wars survives Order 66. Not a spoiler. It was in the trailer for the series. And they take him back to Kashyyyk to find his people. Um, And so they're back on Kashyyyk, the Wookiee planet. And trees play a very large role. They actually think that the the planet belongs to the trees. Hmm. And they actually can, can talk to the trees. And the trees actually have intelligence and strategic thinking. So we, it was very interesting sort of seeing a very like tree-oriented um, culture yes. that communicates with trees. Trees were sentient on Kashyyyk. And if you're a serious, dark, deep Star Wars fan, it had a lot of tie-ins to the Star Wars holiday special from 1978. So, okay. yeah, which is both good and bad. 
But yeah, yeah. But I mean, the Wookiee, um, the Wookiee habitats are taken right from that special. Hmm. Interesting. So it's canon. It's canon. It's canon. All okay. right. What do you watch recently? Well, I don't think I have nearly as much commentary to offer on all of these things. Um, and I do want to make sure we have enough time to get into the trees in depth. Um, but yeah, as I mentioned before, I have been watching His Dark Materials. Um, I don't have a lot of time to sit and binge watch things, which kind of seems like Andrew based on our conversations <laughs> we do. Um, so it's been sort of a slow process. Um, and did I finish it or is still finishing? I also am watching it late at night often after the kids are asleep. This is, you know, what my husband and I do as our evening activity. And um, so I'm often, you know, not at my sharpest and most attentive at that time. But I've been really enjoying his dark materials um, and really enjoying um, the final, finally seeing the depiction of dust um, when we're able to view it through um, pieces of amber and they see this sort of golden um, substance that gathers around living beings, um, living, living things, uh, which I just always find so beautiful to me um, is like what I think of when I think of the Shekhinah, when I think of mm. the divine presence. Um, watched the Ring of, Rings of Power recently. Um, that one... I, like I, I love just the cinematography. It was beautiful. Um, kind of a little bit of a slower moving series for me. And again, late at night, I often was falling asleep. I don't think that's necessarily the fault of the show. And it's more me. Um, but I enjoyed it and looking forward to seeing what comes from that. It's like a prequel to uh, Lord of the Rings. Also watched Avatar The Way of Water um kind of did it on a whim um we were supposed to fly to visit my parents our flight got canceled and while we were waiting for standby i took the kids to watch a movie and keep us all occupied for three and a half hours which it did that and i enjoyed it um it's been a long time since i saw the first one so trying to remember and re-enter that world was interesting but uh it was also right interesting in, in thinking both about trees, about the way that um, you might imagine connections between human or sentient beings and plant life. Um, I don't know. I think there could be a lot of theological considerations to explore there too. You know, what is it? What exactly is this substance that they're coming in contact with from the tree? Is it some kind of you know physical substance or is there something kind of an element of divinity in it um or both how do we think about those things maybe it's dust <laughs> it's dust i'm telling you i've seen the <laughs> thing over and over again um and this is somewhat recently i don't remember when i finished it but sometime this fall or winter house of the dragon love it Loved it so much. Um, it felt like everything I loved about Game of Thrones, but they learned to make it less rapey. And um, I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, there was, it's certainly intense, right? Ep first episode has some very intense moments. And of course, people die because that's what happens in this world. 
but um, really fascinating and looking forward to seeing where that goes and maybe in a future episode really find the Westeros world um, interesting in, in kind of seeing the different religious systems that are developed um, and comparing them. And I'm sure we'll have chances to talk about that in the future. So I also watched all of those series as well. I don't, I, I have a pretty good work-life balance right now and I'm also up very early with my son. So I have a lot of like, and I don't get enough sleep at night. So I kind of like watch the ends of the days sometimes, um, perhaps more than I should, but definitely I do. Uh, I do manage to find time to watch um, quite a bit. Hmm. Okay. So, okay. Yes. So true confessions. Um, so on to our main topic, which is trees. So because coming up on Sunday night and Monday, it is Kubishvat. So what is Kubishvat? And a little note here, we kind of are trying to figure out the balance for whatever audience may be out there between you know, they more the sci-fi fantasy knowledge. Do they have more of the Jewish knowledge? A bit of both, neither. So we will explain, but not hopefully over-explain for your knowledge base. Um, but any questions, email us. We'll put the email address at the end. Yeah. Or if you're thinking about this and there's some question that you're dying to see explored from a Jewish lens and sci-fi fantasy lens, open to suggestions. Definitely. You bet. Okay, so what is Tubishvat? Um, so Tubishvat, literally, it means the 15th of the month of Shvat in the Hebrew calendar. Um, it is mentioned as one of several new years in the Mishnah, which is a second century compilation of Jewish teachings and law. Um, and originally, this had an economic and, and agrarian or agricultural purpose. Um, it was used to determine the age of trees. So whenever you came around to the 15th of this month of Shabbat, you would know that the tree would be counted as one year older. And this was important because you wanted to mark the age of the tree in order to know when the tree is considered to be mature and when the fruit can be harvested and also tithed. And um, back in the day, you know, people paid their taxes, essentially, by giving produce if they were farmers. So um, so it was part of really this, this very practical tax system, um, largely in support of the temple, um, the, the center of Jewish worship in, the ancient, in ancient Israel. Um, later on, this day became associated... Um, with Jewish mystical ideas. So the Kabbalists, the Mekubalim, who were mystics living primarily in, uh, in the city of Tzfat, in the land of Israel, in the 16th and 17th century, began developing some different ideas, different ways of relating to the nature of God in the world. Um, and one of these was the idea that there are these spherot, these different emanations of the divine presence that exist in the world that can be organized kind of along the lines of a, a tree. They call it a tree of life. 
And they create this new creation narrative that imagines God's creative power in a lot of ways as a tree with its roots up in the heavens or the divine realm um, and reaching down to our realm, to the earthly realm, to create the cosmos. And the Kabbalists in particular around Tubishvat developed a Seder ritual. So you might be familiar with the idea of a Seder um, for the holiday of Passover, when we retell the story of the exodus from Egypt, and it's done around a ritual meal that involves the eating of symbolic foods and drinking four cups of wine or grape juice. And so the Tubishvat Seder draws on the similar idea, um, celebrating the four seasons, the four worlds in Kabbalah um, in order from the earthly realm up until up into the highest spiritual realm. And it connects with the annual cycle of the trees, as well as integrating eating different uh, kinds of fruit as a way to enact the unification of the scattered aspects of God in the world. So very, very mystical in nature. And then for the next few hundred years, it kind of, that kind of rode. And then in the early 20th century, late 19th century, um, the JNF is founded, the Jewish National Fund, a large old fundraising organization supporting the emergent, what would that later become the State of Israel? That's in 1901. Well, JNF's in from 1901, when the Jewish people had begun to and continued to immigrate back to what was then called Palestine. And as a kid, I remember very clearly in Sunday school, giving tzedakah, charitable giving, was mostly done by putting coins in these little blue and white metal boxes that had JNF on them um, for planting trees in Israel. Reforestation was a big focus of theirs and still is. Uh, in fact, is it is so often, I remember as a kid, for every kid's bar bat mitzvah, they would give the kid a certificate. Here's a tree been planted in your honor in Israel. And the old joke, your day to water, it is Tuesday. Ha ha ha. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly, and certainly, and Tuba Shavat acquired, on top of the agrarian and the Kabbalistic layer, acquired a land of Israel, focused on the land layer. And then the Seder, which the mystics did with eating certain kinds of fruit, the next layer of eating kind of goes, well, let's focus on the produce of the land of Israel. You know, what grows there? What are its agrarian products? You know, um, Jaffa oranges, carob nuts, olives, olive oil, etc. That kind of became the next layer of the Tubishvat Seder was focusing on Israel's land. And then, then the, another layer on Tubishvat came in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, in 1969, there was a huge oil spill in Santa Barbara. The very next year was the first Earth Day, focusing on recognizing the importance of, you know, the planet for human life. And Tubishvat then acquires another layer. It acquires this Jewish Earth Day layer. And some say it was then ret- retcon as the original Jewish Earth Day or the original Earth Day itself. And then Tubishvat becomes an ecological holiday to focus on ecology and stewardship 
on the earth. So it's this tax milestone that became a day about contemplating our environment and supporting responsible stewardship of the earth. And all those layers are all kind of mixed together in a lot of the two Bishvat Seder. Some are more focused on one or the other, but a lot of them kind of blend all these elements together in not a jumble, but sometimes in a jumbly kind of way where they're all kind of like, you know, mixed in and not really thoughtfully organized. But it's it's all kind of there beneath yeah. the two Bishvat surface. So that, of course, raises the, the notion of trees, and trees certainly play a large role in Jewish thought. First trees, Garden of Eden, mentioned in Genesis 1 on the third day when vegetation is added to creation. And in Genesis 2, there's certainly the tree focuses even more centrally as a source of knowledge of good and evil. And there's a huge range of views of what that might mean. So the tree that the woman in the garden famously ate from, that's the tree of Eitz Da'at Tovarah, and then she shares its fruit with the man. I can't call him Adam and Eve yet. That's too early. So the tree and the wood are both beautiful, very appealing, and eating from this tree seems to give somebody, uh, to give them an awareness of their selves in a new way. Um, either in a way that is sexual or like a loss of innocence, shifting from childhood to more of an emerging adulthood. And they're aware that they're naked for the first time. Um, it's also linked to human beings shifting from being immortal, ostensibly, to then immortality being achieved through childbearing. And versus just living forever, the human chain of life is propagated through sexual intercourse at that point forward. And that's when that shift might have taken place. And there's a lot to say about how that text gets read and appears in various works, including his Dark Materials, mm -hmm. where Eve, or the second Eve, because uh, Lyra is called the second Eve, that certainly plays a very large role in his Dark Materials. Um, the other tree that is a concern in the Garden of Eden is the Tree of Life, which ostensibly gives immortality, once the two humans eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, the concern is they'll take from that next tree and become immortal again, unclear, and they are then thrown out of the garden so they will not be immortal. And the term tree of life, we're going to come back to that because that becomes a really important idea later on. Um, short nod to, the, to Noah and the olive tree branch. Not really a tree. It's an off-screen tree as it were, but the symbol of the olive branch as a symbol of peace comes from that dove bringing back the olive branch as the waters recede from the flood and ostensibly humanity and God are then sort of back at peace one with the other. Hmm. All right, Lindsay, take it away. Yeah. Um, just wondering, should I jump in here about any of this stuff? But I'm mm. kind of thinking about this connection between the trees in the Garden of Eden and this olive branch um, that is brought back as a sign sort of of this restoration and the ways that, you know, trees are, are associated with this, with wholeness, with this like idyllic setting in some way um especially since the the noah the flood story is like an undoing of creation in a lot of ways oh yeah totally thinking about it's like a total reversal of the creation and then right what does it 
what does it signify that the first sign that things are sort of back to or getting back to normal, the new normal, post-flood normal, um, is this dove being able to bring back a clipping from a tree. Um, You know, I didn't even mention that the actual ark is, of course, made of wood. They're actually in a box made from trees that kind of becomes their miniature floating Garden of Eden from which they emerge to populate as well. So forget about the that floating box made of tree. Um, so you said something about it. Yeah. Great. So um, continuing on the journey trees through the Torah and Jewish tradition. Um, We kind of felt like the next significant appearance by a tree or tree-like item is found in the book of Exodus, which we in the Torah reading cycle have read really recently. It is the burning bush, which may or may not be a shrubbery. Must bring a shrubbery. Okay, no laughs, nothing. Nothing. Moses definitely was brought to the shrubbery. He was. He was. He was brought to the shrubbery. That is true. Okay. And so Moses, who was the greatest prophet in Jewish tradition, encounters God speaking from this bush that appears to be on fire but is not consumed. Um, his God's presence, both here and later on, it seems to be represented by the fire. Um, but it's interesting, and I don't, I don't know what else we might have to say about this. That God chooses to have God's presence manifest in this living botanical presence. I don't know. That didn't make sense as a sentence. I that made sense. I don't know. I think I used the word presence like three or four times. Um, but yes. So so God is is in the fire, but that God chooses to place the fire on this bush. Um, and right, I wonder if that's supposed to be sort of like a callback, right? Or are people already kind of primed to think of trees as being a site of sacred encounter? I don't know. I don't know. I think that makes a lot of sense. Tree as place where divinity is encountered. Totally. And that will, you know, comes up in a lot of places that comes up. You mentioned Game of Thrones. They have the Weirwoods where they encounter the old gods in these trees that have faces. Yeah. And we're going to see more in Jewish tradition as well. Like the ways that Jews or the Israelites, I should say, um, encounter other cultures or peoples that place significance on trees as as being maybe even representation of of God. Okay, mm-hmm. um, you want to take it a little? Yeah, so I read somewhere. I think it was in the work of Noga Haruveni, whose family created created the biblical garden or the Mishnaic era garden Ot Kedumim that. The burning bush might actually be a menorah-shaped shrub. Mm-hmm. Or was that, or is that, or is what that the one that grows on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem? Maybe both. Anyway, so in the building of so later on in Exodus, after the Exodus, after being at Mount Sinai, 
it is what you're told to build this portable sanctuary called the Mishkan in Hebrew, which literally means like the place of the divine presence or the tabernacle. And at the center of it, one of the main pieces is a seven branch stylized golden lampstand, which is described exclusively in botanical terms, cups and leaves and petals. And it is definitely like a golden tree topped with seven oil lamps, which kind of mm-hmm. connects back to the burning bush, mm-hmm. which if it was that kind of shrub, which looks like a menorah, it's like a stylized metal version of that. So, you know, the lamp of the menorah, the lamps of the menorah kind of evoke the burning bush, perhaps very directly. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is also, you know, that menorah being, you know, relit in the story of the, the Maccabees and the story of Hanukkah is also the origin of the Hanukkah, the eight or nine branch um, candelabra, another symbolic tree on fire. And as you may know, a lot of cultures light trees on fire around the solstice. So I often think of the, the, the Hanukkah as that stylized metal tree um, that we light yeah. up. Yeah, definitely. Um, do you want me to take the next piece here? Sure. Okay. Um, so I had alluded to this a little bit when we were talking about in the Mishnah, the importance of knowing how old trees are. Um, we have another idea as we move forward in the Torah, when you get into the book of Leviticus, which is focused more on laws, ritual practice than it is on the na- more narrative uh, elements of the Torah. So, So we're getting a lot of information about what the people will be doing when they finally get to the promised land. So there's a lot of focus on agriculture and agricultural practices. And you start to see this idea of the tree as sacred emerge. um, And that there's this idea that the fruit of a tree is forbidden for a set period of time. Um, You have to allow the tree to reach a certain stage of maturity before you can begin to harvest um, the the fruit for consumption. Um, and interestingly, the word that's used to talk about this practice is orla, um, which is the same word that we use um, RL in a couple of different places, um, particularly means uncircumcised. Um, and Moses when he first encounters God in the burning bush and God um, sends him on a mission to speak to Pharaoh, to advocate for the release of the Israelites from slavery. One of the things he says is that I am Aras Fataim, that I'm um, uncircumcised of lips. Um, and there's some question about what that could mean, but there seems to be some sense in all of these of there being some kind of blockage or um, impediment or um, something that prevents something else from taking place. Um, And Andrew, as you and I were talking, we thought that this kind of dovetailed into this idea of personification of trees. Isn't it interesting that the same word that we use to talk about humans and their um, their openness, maybe in certain kinds of ways, is, is being applied to trees. Um, that maybe there's some kind of parallelism or we, a recognition that we might have. 
identification that we might have with trees that maybe we don't with other plants, which leads into this interesting passage um, in Deuteronomy, which is the very last book of the five books of the Torah. And um, in a discussion of the laws of war, um, there's this idea that when you're laying siege to a city, we're told you should not cut down fruit trees in order to make, to build a siege works. Okay. Um, and the, the statement in the Torah is, um, and is a tree like in the field, like a human, it's, it's kind of a tricky line to, to translate. Actually, there's more than one possible way to translate it in terms of what the rhetorical force is. Um, it seems to be saying something along the lines of, well, maybe it's that a tree, a tree perhaps can't run away like a human. Why, why should you be attacking a tree in the process of war in the way that you might a human enemy? Maybe there's an idea, right? Also, you're actually undercutting your own sustenance. Let's say you actually are successful in conquering this city um, and you've destroyed the food source. That's not going to be great. But I think there's also something resonant there about the way that we relate to trees, maybe as being more human-like. Um, you think about, you know, looking out the window, or at least I definitely used to do this as a kid, you know, mm -hmm. looking out the window at night and seeing, you know, the shapes of trees and branches and they can look kind of human-like. Um, if you're looking out onto a field and sort of imagining these, these trees out there, something that, that I don't know, maybe is more reminiscent of a human being because of their size, because of their form, or maybe because of their longevity. Like they, trees often live as long or longer than humans, and we'll talk a bit more about other ways that that comes up. Um, right, so... We see elsewhere in the Torah and um, later on in the Hebrew Bible, the idea of the Asherah, um, the kind of tree. It seems that a lot of people in the ancient Near East, in Canaan, um, might have venerated trees, um, possibly as the site of divine presence or a representation of a god or goddess, maybe as a consort to a god um, and there, there's a specific uh, prohibition in the Torah against worshiping or venerating the Asherah. Um, unfortunately this idea, well I don't know, we can, we can talk about this more, yeah. um, but as in many cultures, you know, this injunction to destroy the sacred um, sites, sacred posts these Asherah um, and, and other cultic sites that were not part of the accepted worship of of the one God of Israel. Um, it's so, one thing that's so interesting, like so the Asherah, you know, as as like God's consort, and there are, we have some like records where the Asherah was even like Israel's God's consort, mm -hmm. as like sort of God's like feminine companion whatever that means mm -hmm. and then you kind of it's like you mentioned like the shekhinah god's presence 
which is almost like they kind of rescue the feminine aspect of Asherah and they mm-hmm. bring it in as this feminine grammatically presence of God to kind of keep that. And it's very interesting that there's like this divinity found in trees that the rabbis kind of keep in a more abstract way. Yeah, I think that's right. And I mean, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, which is the the way that um, in both Judaism and I think in many traditions or just in world religions more broadly, I think there's always this push and pull or maybe pendulum swing between the ideas of unity and the ideas of multiplicity. And even when you swing really far to one side, as we see being articulated in some of uh, in the Torah and in many of the books of the Hebrew Bible of this like radical monotheism, um, you can't really ever fully root out or suppress these other ideas, this idea of multiplicity and also of like the feminine aspect of, of God. Um, and it comes back in different ways, right? Rabbis talk about a Shekhinah. The Kabbalists really go to town with it um, in really, you know, e- creating even more multiplicity um, through the spherot and attributing some of them as having masculine versus feminine qualities and even kind of um, bringing in this sexualization of the god of the divine right that that right. they're yeah which they call the tree of life right this unification between the masculine and feminine elements um to create this wholeness but there's both this simultaneous multiplicity and unity i think that maybe why the why the kabbalists call the the 10 sphero emanation is a tree of life mm-hmm. it kind of gives like this overarching unity to what looks like multiplicity but mm-hmm. really it's underlying unity right which is, is a big theme in kabbalah well, there's, there's mm-hmm. an underlying unity to everything that seems separate it's really all one mm-hmm. um, so so tree is the language that kind of um does that to mm-hmm. kind of like bring together all the parts that look like they're different but they're really part of the same you know multiple branchingness of reality yeah, that's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, at least around the tree itself. And it's making me think of, you know, the way that we represent family trees. Like, why is it that we pick the tree? Um, and, it, you know, there's this, the pieces of it, the trunk, right? We're all sort of springing from the same roots and connected. Um, but as you go out further onto these branches and you might see on some of these family trees, people literally draw little leaves as, you know, kind mm-hmm. of individual people that are that are have their own individual identities right but are also part of this larger organism um so that's an interesting idea to possibly come back to at some point um so yeah in terms of personified trees we'd already talked about in the game of thrones world the weirwood so these were um, trees or sacred groves, very similar um, to ideas that we see represented in the Hebrew Bible as well, that there seem to be these you know, sacred groves that people would go to. Um, they're associated with the old gods of the north in the Game of Thrones world, in Westeros. 
Um, and they seem to, you know, have these faces that that are very human-like, um, and maybe some hints that they they might have some kind of sentience from time to time. Um, do you want to were say those, were those carved faces or were those natural? I don't remember. No, I don't know. They were addressed. They they weren't. I don't think it was ever really addressed. But sometimes you saw like sap kind of like dripping out of them. It wasn't clear. You know, is that just oh because it was somebody made a cut in the wood, or sometimes it was sort of shown in this like suggestive fashion that like maybe something about these trees is reacting to what the human beings are doing, but I'd have to go back and, and watch it to know for sure. Did you want to say something about the Ent? Because I think that was. Sure. Know. I mean, one of the classic personifications of trees is in Tolkien's work, uh, Lord of the Rings, when um, you run the, 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 the two hobbits run into um, Treebeard, the Ent, who's a tree shepherd, um, which also kind of gives trees a kind of an unruly needing to be reined in from their weird behavior um, vibe. I think there is actually, in, maybe it's, in, I don't know if it's in Lord of the Rings or in the Silmarillion, there are some like wild trees that are like a little out of control and mm-hmm. the Ents need to kind of rein them in. There's one scene in Lord of the Rings where the trees are harassing Merry and Pippin and Treebeard kind of like smacks the tree to let them go. And the tree's roots kind of move to release them from being held down. And of course in the battle in um, at Helm's Deep, when the orcs run, they run into the forest, which basically kind of from afar, just like the whole forest just basically just destroys the entire Urukai army in one sort of like distant, noisy, crunchy, um, off-screen battle you're like oh that's very expensive to film that so they didn't do that <laughs> yeah but tree beer and there's a whole council of the ants and they they you know they live a very long time they speak very slowly they kind of you know even their words kind of come out very slowly they call gandalf young master gandalf and he's clearly thousands of years old they're even older <laughs> Um, and like they've lost their wives, which is very sad. They go, are they dead? No, no, we just lost them. We don't know where they are. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some of these like these like old grumpy bachelors who are, like mm. in charge of the trees. They're a strange bunch. Mm. Um, yeah, but they're definitely like a, a you know a family favorite in my family of like yeah. the personification of a tree. Yeah, yeah. Going back to my Disney roots, I mean, one of the favorites a tree sentient tree image that I always have in mind is uh, mother willow from Pocahontas or grandmother willow um, who, who sings to Pocahontas and, you know, offer is also a source of wisdom. So this maybe connects to some of uh, what you're going to be talking about in just a minute, Andrew. Um, also right. The, the trees in the wizard of Oz who kind of come to life and are, you know, grabbing at, um, Dorothy and her friends. Um, and of course there's, there are similar ideas, you know, these sentient trees or tree deities in other cultures as well. There's idea of the green man, who's probably an old pagan vegetative de- deity. And that, um, in some ways, you know, we see parallels with, with this, with Elijah, who, Kind of is, is seen as having this evergreen spiritual power that he rested under a tree and was nourished there. Um, 
And then going back to the idea of Orla that you were talking about with the the trees needing to have this waiting period before um, before they're able to be, have their fruit harvested. Um, so it's almost like a feedback loop kind of thing that happened, right? We're saying it's like, oh, that practice seems to be a personification of the trees. And then it kind of seems like we then took something very similar and applied it to humans in the Upshiran custom, um, which is connected. Upshiran is um, in, in many communities, um, boys in particular do not have their hair cut for the first three years of their life. And some communities will have a practice of having a special celebration um, on the occasion of a boy's first haircut, um, which is known as the Upshiran. Um, okay. So touched a little bit on wisdom trees. Indeed. Wisdom. Yeah. Trees as a source of wisdom. So in the book of Proverbs in chapter three, wisdom speaks and is personified and wisdom as wisdom often is in a pagan pantheon. Wisdom's usually assigned to a female deity and chokhmah wisdom mm-hmm. is a feminine noun in Hebrew. So wisdom is sort of speaking as in the, in a female voice in the book of Proverbs. Um, And wisdom says that wisdom was there with God when God began creating, which kind of is an interest, which is an idea that um, will tie back into trees. Well, no, it'll tie into wisdom as Torah, but also wisdom as tree. Because one of the verses in that passage is, that wisdom is a tree of life to everyone who, holds on to it and everybody who supports that tree are joyful, felicitous, happy. And so it's about wisdom, but the rabbis very quickly assign wisdom identity to Torah, also a feminine noun. And then Torah becomes the tree of life. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, Mother Grandmother Willow is clearly tree as source of wisdom. And in the Avatar, these trees are also, they connect to them literally as sources of collective wisdom for the Navi. Um, Avatar and Pocahontas being very similar, uh, mm-hmm. almost the exact same plot. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the tree of life as an image certainly occurs in a lot of fantasy literature. It's often like the goal of the questing hero which the villain can take advantage of. Of course, calling Tor the tree of life harkens back to the Garden of Eden. Like this is the tree that causes real immortality, not biological, but kind of like spiritual or supernal mm-hmm. immortality. There's a lot to go into that, but suffice to say, it kind of evokes that. Um, in Narnia, the magician's nephew, uh, Diggory picks an apple, which he has to bury to save Narnia, and the white witch eats one from the tree to gain immortality. So there's that tree of life evoked there for sure. Um, the idea of a world tree, definitely Avatar evokes this idea of like the world tree, where there's a tree at the center of the world. Or the world centers around a tree, um, which functions as the axis around which the world spins. Um, and interestingly, so the center of the Jewish world was, as you mentioned, Lindsay, was the temple in Jerusalem, and that was sort of like the axis of the world. I often say that if you, if you took a globe, like a globe of Earth, and you oriented it 
in a Jewish way, you'd have the temple on the North Pole. Mm-hmm. That would be the axis around which the world used to spin. But once you get the second, when you get the first temple destroyed, even when a second one is built, when the Torah emerges, um, there you've got the tree of life, sort of like the world tree. That's the new center of the world, highly portable, wherever you have a Torah. And they even call the, the two wooden stat staves that hold up the scrolls. Those are called Ase Chaim, trees of life. Mm-hmm. Um and when you hold it up, you basically have like, that's the tree around which everything revolves. And once the second temple is destroyed, the Torah as tree of life kind of like moved to the center of Jewish life. Mm-hmm. So wherever a Torah scroll is, that's the center. Or we put Torah in the center of Jewish life because it is a tree of life, not literally, but even figuratively. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like the organizing principle. Um yeah, and you mentioned the tree of life with a Kabbalistic notion of the ten emanations kind of reaching down, and we reach up, kind of like in like in, in mirror image tree imagery. Um, and the idea of a world tree—it's been in Neil Gaiman's American Gods, Roger Zeleny's Chronicles of Amber, and I have not read, but it's in the Dark Tower series by Stephen King. Um, and in the King Killer Chronicles by Patrick Rothfuss, which I did actually read during the pandemic, there's this one tree, uh, or there's um, a creature called the the Cathay. I am not saying it right. It's horrible and malicious, and it's this omniscient being that brings about people's destruction by telling them their fate, and it lurks in a giant tree, and it uses sort of like aspects of a tree to lure people in. So there's a very sinister, mm. you know, malevolent tree, which is unusual. Right. Um, You're talking about that. Trees usually seem to be good and not evil. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's, an, it's, a, it's an odd one, along with the uh, Wizard of Oz trees, where the trees right. are actually malevolent. Oh, and usually they're, you know, the source of eternal life or source of wisdom or the organizing principle around which the entire world revolves. So yeah, but the, the idea of the but, the, but the, the the tree of life phrase definitely gets used in such a wide range of Jewish contexts and appears, you know, that's used in so many other places as well. Yeah, at the risk of you know making this extend into a much longer conversation, you know, I, I'm really noticing here, and perhaps this is something that we should have maybe looked into a little bit more. Um, you know, in Western culture to me, or pop culture and mythology and other traditions, it's not really at all surprising to me that we would see this tree of life having a very direct connection back to the biblical story. Um, because of course, it's not just a Jewish story. It's, um, the Hebrew Bible was adopted by Christianity and those stories become, really baked into people's conscience uh, or uh, consciousness, whether it's seen as a, as a religious trope or not. Um, So I think it would be, I know those, the stories and the focus on trees exist in many other cultures as well. And thinking also of, you know, the Buddha sitting under the banyan tree um, and that that is the place where he um, experiences enlightenment. Um, so again, you're seeing in a completely different cultural context, the tree being associated with wisdom. And so I'm curious about other stories that might exist 
like that in other cultures from around the world that are not, you know, linked to the biblical traditions. Um, or you think of the, um, the apocryphal story of Isaac Newton sitting beneath the apple tree when he realizes how gravity works there, Mm -hmm. you've got another, you know, very modern science version of, you know, wisdom from tree, mm-hmm. you know, very secular. Um, that's along the lines of that same kind of enlightenment, this aha moment. Yeah. It didn't yeah. happen, but but it, it, it's described as having happened under a tree. Right. Because I think that that image is so resonant and so powerful that it's like, of course, that would be the place where you would experience a revelation of new knowledge. I think I saw that actually specifically in Schoolhouse Rock. Mm. In the one about uh, gravity, which is the doo-wop classic from Schoolhouse Rock. Okay. Um, Right. We'd kind of mentioned this when you were talking about the Ents. um, Trees being slower or having a long lifespan compared to humans. Um, Right. You were talking, you were speaking earlier about the long earth and this tree battle that kind of happens in slow motion, right? The trees have such a much longer lifespan in that world that they're, from our perspective, engaged in a battle against other trees in a slow motion, so slow that it's almost imperceptible to us. Um, And I think there's something right about that that uh oh sorry um yeah there's uh something about that reflected in jewish traditions as well um with the story of choni hamagal and the carob tree um where it's a story in the talmud choni is this sort of miracle worker um and uh i'm trying to remember the details he you know sees someone planting a tree, um, a carob tree, which notoriously take a very long time to grow um, and asks the person, you know, well, what are you doing? I mean, you know, you're, you're not going to live to see this tree reach maturity. And the person says, you know, others planted for me. Um, so that's why I'm, I'm planting for the future. And then Honey, you know, kind of has this um, Rip Van Winkle experience um, goes sleep, wakes up seventy years later. Um, the person who had planted the tree is no longer living, but of course their their descendants are. And um, here is this fully grown carob tree for them to enjoy. So I think, right to me, yeah. It's very interesting, like the age of trees. It's like this, you know, connection between generations that we can experience. Or often you'll have this practice of people, um, you know, sometimes planting a tree when a child is first born or is very young, and then they get to kind of grow up alongside the tree. Um, and it shows more of some of that connection that we seem to feel with trees, whether we're consciously aware of it or not. I think I think they use the branches of those trees for the hookup poles for the marriage canopy for those kids, like two mm-hmm. from his tree, two from her tree. I've heard that as a custom. Mm-hmm. No, that's interesting. Yeah, in in the book, the in in the book in in the the series, The Long Earth by Terry Pratchett and Stephen Baxter, um, where humanity is able to experience uh, an almost infinite variety of Earths. One of them uh, is a where trees have become sentient, and as they pass through 
um, that earth, it looks like the trees are engaged in a, like, a, like a physical like fist fight battle. But of course, because they live in such a slow time scale, it looks frozen to us. But when they do it, um, it, it's you know we're like flies buzzing around, um, moving so quickly to, to be almost meaning meaning nothing. Um, but they kind of see the uh, trees, um, you know, like f- as if they're just like frozen. But for them, moving at you know normal tree pace. Um, and the, and then recently, you mentioned the Rings of Power, which we both watched, uh, and the Rings of Power. Um, based on Tolkien's work, the Silmarillion, there are these two trees of Valinor, which are these original trees. They even have names Telperion and Laurelin. And basically, they are the original light that becomes the sun and light that becomes the moon. And they're these, they give this early supernal almost miraculous light, which when the trees fade, become the, the light gets transferred to the sun and the moon. Um, and then, of course, and then in the Rings of Power, they sort of like assess like how much is Sauron progressing in his return by seeing like how much the leaves of the trees are weakening and rotting. So, you know, trees as indicator of the overall world's health like a barometer um, for that sort of like comes up both in like the old story of those two trees and then the current trees in their world are like, you know, slowly fading. Um, they're all kind of like, they're like an ecosystem barometer. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot about trees. That's for there's sure. There's a lot. And there's probably even more we could say. I'm sure there trees. is. So if you, are- if you, if you listener know of any other trees, in sci-fi or fantasy, you know, what is it? How are they represented? And, you know, what's the meaning of the tree in that setting? Is it like these or different? It's all very interesting. Agreed. All right. So our last section for today is from the Geniza, in which we uh, pick from the past or from a lesser known past of the genres that we're covering um, and it might be tied to something that we're talking about this week or not, just something that we love. Um, so first of all, what is a Geniza, Andrew? So it, there may be no more conservative Jewish movement image than the, than the Geniza. It's sort of like this d- near and dear thing in the mythology of the conservative movement. So a Geniza is a place where... When a Jewish document, usually a sacred document or article or art or you know ritual item that requires this treatment, rather than throwing it away, burning it, recycling it, it is put into a special place to then later be buried in the ground. Um, so it's like you know if you're making any photocopies of the Torah portion, those probably require the Geniza, unless you removed God's name from those, and so. A lot of communities have burials of their religious stuff that they need to properly handle. So there's a very famous Geniza in Cairo called the Cairo Geniza, discovered by Rabbi Solomon Schechter over 120 years ago. And it contained just like just like all kinds of stuff from Jewish life in the northeast part of Africa for about a thousand years from the time of Maimonides and before till like early 20th century. So taking stuff out of the Geniza is like taking stuff that's like we've, we, we, we have in storage, taking it out and seeing what it says now. That's our Geniza. That is our Geniza indeed. All right. 
So what what are we unearthing today? So I want to take out The Matrix, which the fourth one came out in the past year or so. So I rewatched it not too long ago. My kids have all seen it. So it came out in March of 99, right before Passover. I think that was not a mistake. It is kind of a segment of an Exodus story. Um, humanity is enslaved by machines who, spoilers, um, keep all of humanity, most of humanity in these pods and use their bodies as a power source, which is ridiculous because we're a very bad power source. Um, while their minds exist in this elaborate computer simulation, uh, which, you know, is so, you know, appropriately engaging that nobody questions this new reality. Neo, who is played by Keanu Reeves, um, is clearly the Moses figure, and he is chosen to be the one to free humanity from his enslavement. And back to the burning bush moment, you know, when, you know, when there's a call to the savior to begin their mission, um, Neo's asleep at his desk and you see like on his computer, like someone types on the screen, you know, knock, knock. And Neo notices, he doesn't even hear it. He just notices he's being typed at, which kind of harkens back to Moses noticing the burning bush, the flame, but not really causing um, carbon to, or burning to happen. So Neo has this noticing moment where he kind of begins to wake up from his own enslavement, um, but he's still in the matrix. So um, Morpheus, who is kind of his Jethro, Moses's father-in-law and mentor, basically gets him out into the real world and spends most of the movie trying to convince Neo to believe that he actually is the one paralleling God trying to convince Moses to go and save Israel from Pharaoh. You know, and the classic call of the prophet where the prophet resists the mission. They don't want to do it. They argue, they reject it. Then they eventually come to accept their role. The whole movie is basically Neo basically having his call to be the savior of the prophet and then slowly come to accept that he actually is the one. And the movie ends with him going back in the matrix as the one fully realized. And then basically begins to confront, you know, the agents Pharaoh um, mm -hmm. and then says, I'm a show them a world without you. And then he kind of flies away and we have a sequel. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's a really interesting, like modern Exodus, like a very techno cyberpunk beginning of an exodus narrative i think it holds up really well bullet time is still amazing keanu reeves is simply incomparable as just the overly chill hero who just doesn't even emote that much but he's just great um it was <laughs> yeah. the role he was born to play it's the role and he's so good as john wick <laughs> never kill anybody's dog and you wanted to bring up battlestar galactica Battlestar Galactica. So I'm very aware that there are, in fact, multiple Battlestar Galacticas that we could be talking about. There was the 1978 original TV series, which I have not seen. Um, and then there was the 2000s reboot series um, on sci-fi. And uh, so the premise basically is that in some distant future, um, humans live on a group of planets known as the 12 colonies of Cobol. Um, in the past, the, the colonies had been at war with uh, an android 
set of beings that they humans had themselves created. So similar to the matrix, you know, technology is going to be our undoing. Um, and the, this Android race was known as the Cylons. Um, and so what ends up happening is the Cylons uh, launch a sudden sneak attack on the colonies, which destroys the planets and their populations. It turns out that they're what they had a human collaborator or maybe they were aided unknowingly by a human scientist named Gaius Baltar, which is like a super mythologically influenced name, Gaius, like Earth, Baltar. Um, I don't know, kind of reminds me of like Balthazar or something like a angelic kind of name. Um, and so out of the, the total human population that we're living on all of these planets, there are only about 50,000 human survivors that were, um, and the reason that they survived is that they were mostly aboard these civilian um, ships that were not near enough to the colony planets during the attacks. Um, and Battlestar Galactica, after which the show is named, is the seems to be the only military kind of ship that survives. Um, it is under the leadership of Commander Billy, uh, Bill Adama. Um, kind of have to wonder now. Adam means oh. Earth, right? Um, in addition to right that being the name that we give to the first human being. Um, it, it means Earth um, or Ben Adam it comes to mean, you know, human being. Um, and so they have to, he, along with uh, the president who um, had been the, the secretary of education, but because all of the people who would be next in line to the presidency were killed in the Cylon attacks, she is now in that role and they are trying to lead this, this band of survivors um, to survive, to try to find um, this, to find Earth, this, um, you know, mythological place. No one's quite sure whether it exists. So I kind of feel like this is an interesting story because it contains both elements of an exodus, right? Um, very similar to the exodus narrative, there's a group of survivors who have to travel through, um, in this case, space, through the wilderness to get to uh, in a destination um, that they are not entirely sure exists. Um, and there's also a, an element of it that feels like it's about a return to Eden, return to this original state of creation. The Earth is kind of seen as this Eden, um, there, the fall of humanity seems to be linked to the development of technology and the creation of these Cylons. Um, so there seems to be this desire to return to a simpler state, an original state. Um, and that's kind of how the series ends up ending. So with this return and, you know, the forgetting of all technology although you know perhaps the cycle will return um again and um then we'll end up in the matrix land who knows the next time it's so biblically evocative as like all, all these like like exile diaspora return and like 12 is such a clear like nod to like you know 12 
tribes. Oh, yeah. it's, oh it's it's so like rich with like but but on a much grander scale, like the cosmic scale or like a galactic mm-hmm. scale, is such an interesting like, expansion of this of the, the the same kind of story um, trope. Yeah, it makes me wonder. You know, going back to our earlier conversation, right? How self conscious are the writers when they're doing this, or is it just that these stories, these narratives, are so internalized in Western culture that? they're almost inescapable, right? Like I, we think that we can keep like creating new stories, but it's really the same story over and over again. Right. I think that's the question I think for me is like, what's the author's, how conscious is the author? I'm always curious about that question mm-hmm. as well. I have the question of the rabbis. Are they conscious when the rabbis bring in something from like, you know, Joseph Campbell's, you know, here with a thousand faces, is it conscious or unconscious? Are they just like, you know, imbibing what world cultures think about the hero's journey in many places, or are they doing it, you know, deliberately? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but I, I've heard that the authors of the series are from the Church of Latter-day Saints and did it very consciously. Like they're like rewriting, like, you know, humanity's master narrative in a, mm-hmm. in a, in a new sci-fi setting. Um, having been one of the religions sort of founded when we were aware of planets. Um, Whereas ours predates the idea of planets as more than you know, yeah. as, as as um, as more than moving moving stars in the sky. Right. Um, hmm. Yeah, I think that kind of raises theological questions. How do religions adapt to increasing scientific knowledge, and how is that hmm. reflected perhaps in science fiction and fantasy work? Um, which I think is a very interesting question because. Yeah, how does Jewish theology get impacted through expanded knowledge of science? Always a good question. Always a good question. What do you think of the Matrix? Did you see the Matrix? What, what do you? What's your take on it? Yeah, um, I have seen the Matrix. It's been a long time, so I'm um, intrigued to go back and rewatch it. Uh, it, um, and I'm glad to hear from your perspective at least that it stands the test of time. So I'm going to have to go back and and see that. I think, you know, it's interesting that you're talking about it being an Exodus narrative or him being the Moses figure. Um, I think in a lot of ways though, right. He, he seems more like the Elijah and of course that the Elijah narrative gets kind of adopted into the, um, Jesus narrative, which is not our tradition, but um, is very linked to, strongly linked to Elijah, right? Is this, having this these more like mythical qualities, because, you know, Moses at the end of the story dies, doesn't get to go to the promised land, whereas Elijah gets kind of, you know, spirited away, as it were. Right, because um, in, in the fourth one, Neo, again, does not, he he's died, but he, do, he is brought back. Mm-hmm. He, he never died, he, well, in the shows right. for movie arc, he just keeps not dying, keeps not dying or being right. brought back from death over and over yeah, and over. Has that more like messianic figure aspect? Yeah, and there's definitely Christological imagery from the third one for sure. For sure. Okay. Well. Well, I think that takes us to our conclusion. Yes. So that concludes our first episode of Sacred Realms. We hope that you've enjoyed it. We're planning our next episode to come out in about a month. And Lindsay has inspired the theme of empire as it appears in 
both Jewish thought and appears in sci-fi and fantasy. I think that's such an awesome, rich topic. I'm very excited to think more about it. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, is time to the holiday of Purim, where the Jews are living, Jews of Persia are living in a very large Persian empire. So thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed our first conversation and come back to hear more. This was written and edited by Lindsay Healy Pollock and me, Andrew Pepperstone. And one of us will be editing the audio. Um, Perhaps me. We'll figure that out later. And this episode was recorded and produced using Zencaster. And you can reach us at sacredrealmspodcast at gmail.com. And my wife asked us to include this closing phrase, um, you know, given that we're adding commentary to both Jewish tradition and sci-fi and fantasy, commentaries are called the Mephorshim, those mm-hmm. who explain things. So my wife asked that we close with the words, may the Mephorshim, Mephorshim be, be with you. you. <laughs> All right. See you next time. All right. So let's see.